0: Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure.
1: Thank you for joining us for this month's Travel Around Table discussion, where we aim to cover everything from travel logistics to social issues, environmental and animal conservation issues, and then cultural diversity. Before we get started, if you're listening to this podcast episode and you yourself are a travel expert or in the travel industry in some way and are interested in joining us for a travel around table discussion, you can send an email to travelersblueprint at gmail.com and we will add you to the guest list. Today's topic is becoming an archaeologist. And before we get into the the conversation, I want to give an opportunity for each of our guests to tell tell us where they're located, how they're involved in archaeology, and then where you can actually find information on their work or their website. So Sarah, uh, welcome back to the podcast, first of all. Why don't you tell us where you're located and and what you're doing and how people can find you?
2: Thanks for having me back. My name is Sarah Clausen. I have a PhD in archaeology. I'm currently a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow at Leiden University, which is in the Netherlands. Um, And my primary work is in Southeast Asia. I co-direct the Cambodian Archaeological LIDAR Initiative and direct the Kalkher Archaeological
3: Project.
4: All right. Will?
3: Uh, hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Will Russell. I have a PhD in archaeology. Um, I'm currently the major projects manager for Arizona Department of Transportation, uh, where I do compliance, uh, archaeological work, and my research is in the southwestern United States.
1: Thank you. Hey, Tiago.
3: Hello, guys. Uh, thanks for
4: having me. My name is Tiago Atori. Uh I'm currently uh Pursuing my long overdue PhD in <laughs> Australia, actually, but I'm, I live in Brazil, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I have worked around a little bit and currently I'm doing my work with Dr. Klaassen in Cambodia.
5: All right. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And Chris?
5: Hey, guys. It is an absolute pleasure to be here today. Uh, my name is Christopher Schwartz. I am a postdoctoral research scholar at Arizona State University where I got my PhD Um, in anthropology just last year. And uh, I work primarily in the United States Southwest and Mexico. I co-direct the connections and impacts of Northwest Mexico uh, project and uh, work mostly doing a look at broad scale, long distance exchange between parts of Mexico and the U.S. Southwest. Excellent. awesome. got a lot of Southwest.
1: yeah, Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So Before we get into this conversation today, Sarah, I want to give you an opportunity just so we're all on the same page. Can you just define archaeology for us?
2: In its basic form, archaeologists take um, material remains from past cultures and use that to try to understand more about the cultures. And then ideally, depending on the nature of the data that we have, we can also learn more about society in general and humans in general. Um, So... We study in the past and we study humans. So it can be the human remains itself or something that was touched or used or built by humans, but it has to relate back to humans.
0: Okay. And that's different than paleontology, which is not humans.
2: Exactly. We don't want to ruffle any feathers here, so we do not study dinosaurs. All
1: right. (laughs) Yeah. So there's actually something really interesting in the news that I saw, uh, might have been yesterday, they uncovered at Pompeii a new chariot. Have any of you read up on that at all? No, it's... I, I, I was hoping one of I, I you It was did. literally the headline that I read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, was, I was hoping one of you could explain it to me a little bit more. Uh, but I find that, that archaeological site pretty interesting. And those are the sites that I think bleed into the, the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, that most people are engaged with. So it's the, the, the Roman Colosseum and Pompeii and Machu Picchu. And those are really what most of us... Who don't study it full time kind of understand is archaeology. Does it? It gets deeper than that. And, but before we get into that, I kind of want to take a step back and get an idea of what inspired each of you to pursue archaeology to maybe let us normal people that don't study it get a better understanding of ultimately how it transforms uh, into a real actual profession. So, uh, Sarah, do you remember? Do you remember at this point what what inspired you? What was that moment where you decided to? fly to Cambodia uh, for a living to unearth these these ancient civilizations.
2: Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to go to a liberal arts school, a small liberal arts school, where we were encouraged to take a lot of different courses. So I went to university thinking I would probably be a lawyer. I did my first summer internship at an investment bank. And realized that that was a horrible thing to do. For some people, they enjoy it. But I didn't enjoy it very hey, much, one sitting one in is. an office for 12 hours a day. You should be careful what I say, I guess. Anyways, okay. So <laughs> I thought, I definitely did not go into university thinking that I was going to be an archaeologist. But I started taking more classes and found it really interesting. And then the summer before I graduated, I went on an archaeological dig. And it was in Honduras, actually, the year of the coup. So we ended up getting sent home early as a result of the coup. But um, we're in the field and it was so hot that I was petitioning for us to wake up earlier in the morning so we could get out in the field by 4 a.m. before it started getting too hot. And I was like, anything that is getting me out of bed at 4 a.m. must be um, something that I'm pretty interested in. And then I kind of just went from there. I probably didn't have a good idea of what I was actually getting myself into when I applied for graduate school, but... Here we are, 10 <laughs> years later, and I'm still in love, still loving it.
0: That's great, Chris. I see you nodding a lot. What about yourself? What got you into
5: archaeology? Yeah, so I, I had a, uh, I won't say it's a non-traditional experience because I think anyone getting into archaeology is typically a non-traditional experience, but um, but I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I knew I was going to go to university, I, um, and but I couldn't pick a major. I had no clue. I jumped around from journalism. I jumped into Business we didn't want to do that. So I was kind of laughing at what Sarah was saying just then (laughs) Um, But uh, you know, my parents eventually were like Chris, you need to graduate, you know, this is uh, You got to pick a career and so I sat down and took a look at the course offerings and I was like anthropology There's all these crazy classes about human impact on the environment, you know, archaeology of the southwest archaeology of Peru Um, And to me, I was like, this is incredible. This is so interesting. All of these things um, sounds so much better than than spending, you know, the entire day learning about accounting. No offense to accounting accountants out there. I have great friends who are accountants, but so nice but it me. sounded a lot more compelling. Um, and, and eventually that's what got me. And the idea of being able to spend a lot of time in the field uh, instead of, you know, behind a desk. Although, ironically, we end up being behind a desk most of the time anyway. Um, but yeah, but to be able to spend time in the field, I think that that's what really got me you know, excited about it.
1: Yeah. I find it pretty interesting that we've asked two of you this question, and neither of you were like, you know, when I was five years old, I I watched Indiana Jones. That's I, that's what I was expecting. Um, uh, Will uh, tell us about your your experience.
3: I'll start off by saying I hate accountants, and I won't apologize. <laughs> 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 Unapologetic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was a, a police detective, and I worked organized crime investigations. And I actually became fascinated by how these criminal organizations were able to basically develop their own cultures, um, you know, even with their own languages and their ways of dealing with problems and so forth. And that led to me going back to school and I wanted to uh, be an ethnographer, so basically sociocultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. And my first semester, I had to take um, some of the intro classes. So I took intro to sociocultural and intro to archeology. span and the sociocultural class was hands down the worst class I've ever taken in my life. And at the same time I, I loved the, the archaeology class. And um but I was kinda of hooked at that point. Had everything I liked about police work. Um, you know, using evidence to figure out what happened in the past and uh, only get shot at slightly more, so I was hooked.
0: <laughs> I, I assume that's actually is that a joke or is that real that you get shot at more?
3: Um, no, a little bit less, actually. All right. A little <laughs> bit less. But not none. We're going to come back not to this. Uh,
1: no. we're ge- we're, we, ha- we have to come back to this. Um, Tiago, how, what's your story?
4: Well, I never thought uh, about archaeology as, as police work. and That's interesting. Uh, because he has all the, the perks of the police work with all the Usually we've thought the dangers of it. That's interesting. The dead
1: bodies have been dead much longer.
4: <laughs> right? Oh I know stories of dead bodies on archaeological sites <laughs> that were well produced overnight. Ah <laughs> yeah, that <Sarah>. was scary. <laughs> <And> <laughs> well how did you get into it? That was it? long ago. Well, it was through the university as well. Uh you know, I was always unhappy with my major, so I was jumping around, pretty much like Christopher, and I did absolute, I, I visited every college on the university, and archaeology was a place where I found you know, the ability to to apply most of the stuff from the other departments, and that really took me For you to have an idea, I was from the uh, Human Sciences College, and I ended up uh, applying geophysics to archaeological
0: science. Hmm. All right.
4: Hmm. And I think that was it. And then you you start to work with it. it, When you notice, you're just uh, in too deep, you know?
1: (laughs) That's that's pretty interesting. So none of you went into the the, the mindset that you were going to be an archaeologist. I find that. I find this little... This little social study uh here very interesting
0: well and i'm I'm curious as to what you what your perceptions of how archaeologists are portrayed in pop culture right like indiana jones is arguably the most notable archaeologist in pop culture but there are a lot of others like there are video games of like uncharted where you just roam around finding treasure or tomb raider even the money movies and A personal favorite of mine, you know, 10, 15 years ago when it came out was National Treasure with Nick Cage. And, like, these are all archaeologists, but I don't – let me ask the question this way. Is that an accurate representation of an archaeologist? Any of them? And that's open to –
4: Back in the 19th century,
3: probably. (laughs) I I can say by today's standards, like, Indiana Jones is not – like any of us but he, you know what that's set in the what 40s or something
0: yeah, yeah i believe so yeah so,
3: yeah mm-hmm. probably not too far off the mark at that point all right
1: right yeah he's he's you can kind of tie him into uh Bur- birmingham is that his name the guy who discovered rediscovered machu picchu oh, yes uh where he ended up like just taking all the artifacts home with him and or and he brought him back to harvard or yale whatever institution hiram, bingham. Was, yeah. hiram, hiram bingham. bingham yeah yeah that's yeah. it yeah <laughs> yeah, more Indiana Jones. Uh, well, then let's get into what you actually do. If you're not stealing the... Uh, the the artifact week, off know, of a pedestal, <laughs> I mean, Let's actually get into what modern archaeology is. Any of you can take this, but... Uh, and and you, could, you could tell us in your own words based on what you're actually doing, or maybe just like a broad overview, but how, how would people who think Indiana Jones is the actual archaeologist how would you tell them what it actually is?
3: Um, I can probably start by saying, and I'm sure uh, everybody else here gets the question, what's the coolest thing you ever found? Mm-hmm. Um, which is probably based on the movies and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a whole other story. But at one point I was on um, Wheel of Fortune and Pat Sajak asked me, oh, you're an archaeologist. What's the coolest thing you ever found? And I said, probably a 14th century ritual race uh, network for uh, integrative purposes. He was like, what? And I said, well, oh, T-Rex. <laughs> like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't know you were on Wheel of Fortune. How have I not seen this episode?
3: Uh, well, we
5: don't have to go look for it, sir. I, just, I think we do. <laughs> we, do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we definitely do.
1: But that's And that's what most people think of it as being, you know, finding finding clues to past or human like magical objects, <laughs> but the the question that i i guess some people may have how does that actually help us today
5: yeah i mean i can talk about this just a little bit i um i work i do a lot of my work in a chemistry lab right using um bone chemistry to look at diet paleo diet um migration provenance things like that Uh, And so I think a lot of modern archaeology is actually people who work at the intersection of Archaeology wanting to ask questions about the past and while also kind of applying these new methods um, That we have from other fields. I think archaeology is kind of a melting pot in that sense and that we draw a lot of different methods um, From from different fields and getting back to the question you asked What was the you had one more question for me right there at the end and I'm I'm blanking on it now
0: What is the significance of archaeology?
5: Oh, what is the significance of archaeology? I mean, I would say well, to be a contrarian, I'd say the significance of archaeology is learning just the most mundane, boring things about life in the past. Is is and honestly one of the biggest and most important things we can contribute is learning how life ways differed and and how people lived their lives and um and the the things they did and the things that were important to them and and trying to take some of those lessons um into the present to inform the decisions we're making and how we're living our lives and and to to really get at this um, a large, much larger understanding, I think, of social diversity in the world, right? And how people live their lives and how people go about their daily lives and how they, how they do things.
1: So when you say lessons, are you referring to something that essentially would cause that civilization's demise in some way? And then trying to use that information to make sure the same thing doesn't happen to us? And I, I don't know if, if Easter Island would be a good example of that, but I think that's sort of known as the... Uh, smaller scaled experiment of what happens when you use up all your resources and live unsustainably and essentially kill your, your own community because you have nothing else to to rely upon. Is that, is that what you kind of get at? Or is that like a certain field within archaeology that's like environmentally based?
2: It definitely depends on what your research question is. So, um, some of the stuff that I've been working on recently that's been pretty fun is testing out, ideas from other fields of social scientists so what what happens when you have agricultural intensification what does that mean for farmers how and then these are concepts that are actually being applied to different countries to evaluate how those countries are developing and things like that so using archaeology we can test some of these things out over the long term to see what happened so it's like okay if you're measuring the resilience and sustainability of this country based on these attributes of their water management system, are those good attributes to actually be looking at? Because we can do the same thing and do those same evaluations for these societies of the past and say, well, you know, this society would have definitely failed on those metrics, but thrived for 600 years, as opposed to this society has like great metrics, but didn't last very long.
0: So are there a lot of like simulation running with current archaeology where you're basically analyzing tools or civilizations of the past and the, for example, uh, with Sarah, your work in Cambodia, looking at, you know, the damming of areas, and then applying that to other cultures around, like historical cultures around the world to see if they would have survived the same way? Or could you even apply those to current cultures that are in undeveloped or developing worlds and say, hey, if they applied this, they would be able to survive this much longer or produce this much more?
2: Certainly. So um, the contemporary city of Seam Reap uses a lot of the same water management infrastructure that was built a thousand years ago by the Khmer Empire. Like a lot of the same The very same features. So by studying what happened a thousand years ago, we can understand how these systems interact and what happens when you deforest large areas and then are hit by a series of extremely um, severe monsoons. You know, erosion becomes a problem that starts to damage your infrastructure. And so a lot of the things that we saw happen a thousand years ago when an urban center developed here is happening now because an urban center is developing there and it's growing very rapidly because before it was an important political spot and now it's an important tourist destination. So a lot um. of these patterns are repeating themselves and there's a lot that we can learn. I mean, in that example, from what happened archaeologically at the exact same site for what's happening today.
0: Okay. So there is, there is some extrapolation into the future to apply yeah. what's happening. Okay.
1: And any of you can answer this. <clears throat> How is the experience of trickling that information up the pipeline to the people that are responsible for actually changing whatever needs to be changed to make sure that you don't have the same problem come back again?
4: So
2: Seems like it'd be hard to do, but <laughs> I don't know. So I was listening to a podcast when the pandemic first first was becoming known and people were talking about it. And they were talking to a scientist who researches pandemics and the podcast host was like, who would have ever thought that this would happen? And the scientist was like, oh, I've been saying this is going to happen. Like, what do you mean? Like we knew this was going to happen. We were prepared. So yeah. I, there's, you know, getting list, being listened to is very different from having lessons. Taking that are action. Worth listening to. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's,
0: that reminds me of the 2008 financial crisis with Michael Burry, who was, you know, predicting the, the long, the short and, you know, betting on the fact that there would be a massive financial housing crash and literally no one listened to him. And there is a in Greek mythology, there's I don't remember the name, but one of them is cursed with this notion that they know what's going to happen. But the curse is that no one listens to them.
3: Like every 80s disaster movie. You know, the yes. Running around saying, oh the volcano is going to blow.
1: Yeah,
0: right. Science is real. (laughs) That's such a
1: shame. That doesn't, it's hard to fathom that that, that's our reality in so many ways.
0: So, so Bob and I both work in the engineering and development world in some respect or another. And we've been doing this for many years now. And we both live in, Bob lives in a more rural area of Jersey. I live in a more, more suburban, uh, sorry, Bob lives in an urban area. I live in a more suburban, rural area. So artifacts and things are more likely to be Indian or Native American than anything else. But when we do development projects, there's always this stigma that archaeologists will hold up. Like if you find arrowheads or if you find ancient burial grounds, that they will hold up the development of projects and I guess my question, what I'm trying to get to is how much pushback do you get from developers? And are you seen as the villain in their eyes?
2: I think this is a question for Will. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, yeah, very much so. I mean, I guess it depends on the circumstances, obviously, but um, yeah. Sarah <laughs> and I've worked together um, for a while for a, a state agency. And, um, we found ourselves under the crosshairs there because they were very, uh, pro development and, uh, yeah, having to slow down and pay attention to the archaeology was standing between them and, and money. And, and that got very heated, you know, um, yeah, you definitely become, uh, they, they think of you as an obstructionist. And, you know, anti-progress and anti-money. Yeah. Yeah, it can get scary.
4: The problem is uh, maybe the ignorance about why do we need to do this work? And why do they have to comply to it? Uh, And that's why they see us as a a problem. But this goes back to, to Europe, where you have the old money, you know, and... One of the problems that Europe faces to this day, is immigration. And they look into this back into, into the 80s, you know, early 80s, and say, what's going on? So you have the developing world, and they are developing their, their, their society and their environment, but they are uh, screwing up everything. And, and people's lives are getting miserable. So they are moving away from those places and they, at some point they're going to end up here because we are not doing this here. So if you're doing development and you want the money from the Europeans, you have to comply with a few rules. And one of the rules is that you need to do environmental compliance. So this kind of thing doesn't happen. But uh, and when you go to the site, the guy who's there, you know, uh moving the earth and stuff like that. He has no idea how this kind of thing works. Mm-hmm. So he sees you as the problem. And that's just ignorance on that part.
3: Like pretty much all I do right now is compliance and it's good to have like a like a full tool belt, so to speak. Like I always try starting off explaining to people it's important to do this because it's the right thing to do. And if that doesn't work, you know, it's important to do this because we need to maintain good relationships with descendant communities. And you just go down the line. If that doesn't work, well, this is going to take more time in the end. Well, if that doesn't work, this is going to cost you a lot of money. Um And ultimately, if that doesn't work, you're going to go to prison. So you start off trying to be nice, but, you know, we, we have to do what it takes to, to preserve the, the heritage. So it's good to have several um, options there because some people, you know, respond better to certain stimuli than others.
0: And with, with developments that run into archaeological sites and they have to, let's say, pause construction for a little while, who typically funds the archaeological digs and the resources to do those?
3: Well, a lot of it depends on who owns the land and where the money for the project is coming from. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, if it's a private developer, um, if they're on private property in the United States, anyway, unfortunately, there's there's not a lot holding them back unless they run across burials. Um, if it's on public land or if they're using public money, then the private developer would be responsible for for paying that cost. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, which is kind of funny. Um, I know I worked on one project where it was a private developer using federal money on private property. And they did a study of all the property around what they had purchased, and there'd been like no archaeology there. So they went into their project assuming there was going to be no archaeology. And uh, we told them, You understand, you know, if you catch it, you clean it, like you're going to have to pay for this. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And uh, yeah, they found a lot. <laughs> and, uh, it's going to be like, Tens of millions of dollars that they're going to have to pay, and oh, they wow. tried backing out. The Government's like, "Nope, you took our money, and uh, now you're going to do what you said you're going to do."
1: Is this wow. ongoing right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was found, and where? And I don't know how much information you can actually give on it, but
3: yeah, it was. It was in the southwest. Um, <clears throat> it's here in Arizona, and they found. Basically, a village, but the the main thing that's of interest is they found a, a piece of monumental architecture that's extraordinarily rare, and so it's not something you can just kind of gloss over it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity to actually run across and excavate one of these so hmm. okay, and plus there's burials there too, and we work closely with like the native tribes who, in this case, were like, no, you disturb these." uh these ancestors so now you're going to repatriate them and we don't care what it costs you're going to do that and get it back to us
0: hmm. okay so besides besides developers are there any other external forces that you have to be aware of when doing archaeology i mean i imagine some places are somewhat secluded or not easy to get to and you may be fighting animals <laughs> or just plants I
3: don't know
2: Diego and I have some good stories from water sources at Cock Air
3: no, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
5: do tell
1: bacteria filled water or was it like a flood <laughs> of some kind
5: I
4: don't know your body goes over some weird <laughs> process once in Cambodia but the weirdest thing is that it happens the same thing with every at different stages. So <laughs> when you if you come to our, 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 our fieldwork next time, we will be able to tell you how your guts are going to react and, and I, it's gonna be weird. All right. <laughs>
2: the story I was thinking is I had been so I had been paying $5 for these big jugs of blue water. And I had to leave the site for a day. And Tiago was on site with a couple of our colleagues, and they asked one of the villagers to get, we need more water. So I come back, and they're like, oh, Sarah, like, you've been getting ripped off. You're spending $5 on these drugs of water. We got it for $1. Like, they're ripping you off. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. (laughs) The next day, no one can get out of bed. Everyone (laughs) is just, like, completely destroyed. (laughs) And We talked to the guy. Like our main collaborator was off site with me, and he was like, "Where did you get the? They got the water and been pumped directly out of the moat of the temple. Oh, you can just oh. imagine what was it? I,
1: it's oh, not you're, that look, bad. You're die.
4: <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Oh, it just made us go <laughs> to the bathroom a lot." <laughs> and I, t- I told Sarah, we should bottle and sell this in, in, in the West, you know. It would make a fortune. <laughs> diet, uh, a good diet drink. That's called oh, a cleanse.
1: Free to uh, Southern yes. California. yeah
4: <laughs> well, buy Activia, you know, and this is expensive. Kogucha. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> have some Have some temple water.
3: You guys, you could you guys work with bomb-sniffing well, rats a lot, too, don't you? Oh, Yes
0: bomb sniffing rats is that uh, what
3: yeah
2: there are a lot of landmines in Cambodia still and oh. apparently well it turns out rats are very very good at demining areas because they can sniff out the landmines and then they're not heavy enough to actually set them <laughs> off so they're, they're pretty cute too
0: that's actually really fascinating I never yeah.
1: been. they're being trained to do that
2: yeah so there are these big I think they're African rats they're quite large and they train them and then um yeah it's kind of like walking a dog they walk these rats back and forth and they sniff out the landmines
0: why what what are the landmines from
4: <laughs>
2: um, everyone's
4: been bombing. bombing there southeast asia for like the best 100 years so yeah you choose okay
2: and some governments won't take uh haven't taken responsibility for their part in anything. so they
0: just so, some government from whether it's Cambodia or other nation just placed landmines and nobody's willing to take ownership and take them out.
2: Yeah, there was also a very horrific um, genocide there. So, part of it, part of what is left on the landscape is from that. But there's also been, as Tiago mentioned, a lot of other conflict, including the Vietnam War, which wasn't contained to the country okay. of Vietnam.
4: But I think some of the shells that we found that I I would say they are from the, the struggle with the French forces before the Vietnam War. Yeah.
0: So pretty old. Yes. Wow. wow. All
5: right.
4: And one thing and, that we forgot to mention when we were talking about why archaeology can be you know, important for, for people nowadays is that uh, in, in the way I see it, archaeology is a way of reasoning you know, based on material culture. And we are usually very capable of helping with this kind of, of contexts when you have genocides and you have people go missing. And we usually can, can find out because it, and that's the problem. People make a discourse about something that happened in the past, whether you're against or, 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 or you're proud that kind of discourse, but they set up the discourse. But would the discourse uh, hold up, you know, to the evidence? And that's what archaeology does, uh, does at its best. You know, we can uh, undo this kind of thing. Because I, I usually tell this to, to Sarah, when you have the inscriptions around Cambodia, you know, telling the stories of the kings and stuff like that, can you imagine if one of those kings were a bit like Donald Trump? What are you supposed to find on those inscriptions? Right. You know? That ain't gonna be the truth. It's gonna be something else. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing that archaeology does. And I did have a Mm -hmm. couple of opportunities to look for bodies that were missing in the 70s, in the 80s, and we found them. But then what happened? That it's not our field anymore.
0: Mm. Does that become like a cold case?
4: Yes, it, it, actually, it goes into a war of, 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 how can we say, ideology. In Brazil, we were facing our past and the torture and the missing uh, persons during the military government that we had here from the 60s, late 60s to, to early 80s. And we are doing that, you know, and we're facing our problems and all of a sudden everything changed and no one wants to hear about it anymore. So it depends. It depends on the political wind.
0: Yeah. And I think that's an interesting transition. Like, Do politics define somewhat what you guys are actually looking for? Like when you... When there is an archaeological dig, if there is one, who contacts you and is it up to the political tides at that time?
4: Well, okay, I'll say a little bit. Um, What happens is in the past they used to, you know, control us by just being, I don't know, brute, I think. Put you in jail or something like that. If you don't want to cooperate, that will be the big stick policy. Nowadays, they uh, struggle. They are able to control us over money. So who has the money to do what? And then we all struggle against each other and we compete to that money. And usually, if you have on your research the discourse that they want to hear, you're going to get the money to do it.
2: No. Yeah. A lot of our funding comes from international sources. So depending on what the politics of the moment are, it's either very advantageous to say that your research addresses climate-related issues, or it's, you're encouraged to not mention anything about climate-related related issues, depending on what the – that's one example um, with contemporary politics in the United States, which has really influenced the types of research questions that we're encouraged to ask.
0: Okay.
1: I know, and I'm—I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, but there's a lot of back and forth with archaeological research in Turkey. Uh, I believe it's Turkey, and that's due to the different cultures that occupied that land, and then the clashes with with Islam and Christianity. Does anybody have so? And obviously now it's under it's under Turkish rule, Muslim rule, and they're pushing back against any sort of archaeological digs that would benefit the story of Christianity. And I, I believe that's also a big thing in Jerusalem too.
4: Yeah. There Does, was, there was a big move by Erdogan this year. Of, was it this year? Maybe. Uh, he turned Haja Sophia back into a, um, Islamic temple.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
4: there was, there was a big, uh, you know, symbolic. Yeah. thing.
1: And that's, I, I found that I, I've, I believe that's what I was reading about, um, but I found it really interesting that the 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 pressure by the government to to perform archaeological digs or not depends on the overarching uh, storyline that government wants to portray to the people at any given point in history. So the archaeological information that population will get is controlled through a pipeline by the government yeah. in charge at that point in history. That's really uh,
5: yeah. I think like the most classic example of that, right, would be Nazi Germany and the, the state archaeological program that was run. You know, they, they put out and started doing these digs, commissioned these digs all around the world in an effort to prove that there was like an Aryan state that existed and, and that there were people out there that, that could be proven, right, that were that were um, ancestral. Um, so that's that's probably like the classic example. I know that there's in like a lesser form right politics just plays an incredibly integral part in in archaeology in the united states southwest right because of the interaction between native american tribes um and archaeologists and that that history um you know a lot of the history of anthropology and archaeology is rooted in colonialism and rooted in kind of these exploitative um projects and things like that and so there's still i know i will can probably speak to this a little bit better than i can but even today you know there's still a lot of um he brought up earlier the that that um, burials were found on a project that he was that he was overseeing, and that the interplay between you know um, both the United States government with, and then with tribes and then with people who are working on projects um, and, and the archaeologists doing that work it can be really really um, difficult to maneuver and navigate.
0: I, I guess one of the questions I have through this discussion is I assume there's some kind of creed that all archaeologists follow about wanting to like truly understand the facts of the past. And I think Tiago had mentioned this, like what, it, what a statue or a monument may have said from a 15th century person may have been completely fabricated, but the fact that it's inscribed on that stone is there. And I guess as archaeologists, you want to portray the facts as much as possible, but you're also reading between the lines where you can.
2: Well, a lot of our data is from basically people's trash. And people's trash doesn't really lie. Like, you can lie about what's in your trash, but...
1: Yeah, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that?
2: Um, So a lot of the times when we're excavating, and I actually focus mostly on remote sensing, so I don't deal with material culture in the same way, but a lot of the times when you're excavating, you're excavating a trash midden, which is a garbage dump, or um, where you've thrown the trash um, behind your house. So what I do with one of my classes is I have all the students go and grab something from their trash that's currently in their trash that tells me something about the time period, the gender of the people that are living there, the age of the people that are living there. So um, it's a different way of, it's a different type of data that tells you something very different about the people that are living there than maybe they would tell you yeah. themselves. That's, Truth so, and trash. All right. That's
1: really, I mean, that's, Something that I, I I never thought of. When I think of archaeology, I think of the tomb of King Tut, where you have the <laughs> you know you have the uh, most expensive pieces known to that culture during that time period. I never thought to think that you'd be able to uncover the common waste materials of the general population.
5: Yeah, this is it's actually great that you bring this up because you talked about Pompeii earlier and we call that right, the Pompeii effect, is this idea that because Pompeii was completely covered in volcanic ash and the city was just basically destroyed, when you excavate down into Pompeii, what you're looking at is what was going on on, like, an actual day in the life of people who, who were living there, right? And they have these incredible examples of, like, graffiti and, and things like that, that, that even have, like, the foods that were being served at places where you'd go and get food, you know? Um, but, but most of the time we're just working with, you know, whatever we can find. Um, and, and it's usually not, not so amazing. It's, it's usually just the trash that people threw away or, or the, the things that have fallen in to rooms and, and different kinds of features and things like that over, over hundreds of thousands of years.
4: Hmm. Hail Beanford. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's, uh, the American or who, who, who made these. he, he called it Pompeii premise. He made this famous among archaeologists killers. You know, everyone thinks we're going to excavate Pompeii, and Pompeii actually is the exception of this section.
1: You know? hmm. hmm. Something that I found pretty interesting. So I was in Croatia at one point, and I went to this museum of Roman artifacts that they'd uncovered in Croatia. And going back sort of to the common trash or the, the materials of common people, they excavated pieces of wall and floor stone of some kind and there was just carved penises in it like like what yeah. a child does in like doodles in class like what a teenager really would a draw. child yeah a teenager, an adult. sorry a teenager it was like the exact thing which i found fascinating that the doodle penis has not changed in millennia i found it uh, very <laughs> yeah.
3: very funny yeah. It is <laughs> That brings up an interesting point, though. Um, we do have to always be careful of how we interpret stuff like that, because, like, Sarah and I have done a lot of research into membrous art, and there's a lot of what today would be called pornography. But we have to be careful not to interpret it through that lens, because uh, a lot of small, uh, like smaller cultures uh, use imagery like that to convey uh, ideas about fertility. Mm -hmm. and so forth so it it may look and and it could mean exactly what what it would mean today but it could look the same and mean something entirely different also
0: okay yeah yeah right speaking of drawings uh cave art is that does that fall fall under the realm of archaeology because there was just a recent discovery in i think brazil of one of the largest cave drawings in the world can can any of you talk about that discovery largest or, or oldest i
1: think it was the oldest oldest i think it i think it was the oldest
4: yeah it's, it's southeast asia there is a guy in, in he's friends with my advisor <laughs> there uh, every time he goes to the fieldwork he comes back with a paper on nature about the oldest um uh, cave painting he, he had found like twice now it's it's getting it's scary it's very upsetting for all the archaeologists. It's quite <laughs> successful. And it, yeah, it, it, it is quite interesting because people used to believe in prehistory about the story that um, the French school made based on the excavations of Dordogne, you know, which is a, a region in France that has a, a, a very specific geological setting that we call karst. And in this kind of setting, things get uh, preserved and come on, it's the backyard of the French, one of the strongest schools in archaeology that we have. So we we build the whole idea of prehistory based on that region. But every now and then, when people go away from there to study prehistory, they find out that, you know, things are not like that. So they don't have the oldest uh, painting. The oldest painting is Indonesia. And then it's not Indonesia, it's Malaysia. And every time you, you get away from it, that's what we were trying to do in Kazakhstan.
0: Okay. Yeah, this, this one was a discovery. It was nearly eight miles of cave oh. drawings in Colombia. And they, yeah, I they a... believe it was during the ice age, or roughly 12,000 years old. But it's just pretty, like, we still are finding these things. And this is, eight miles is massive. And I feel like um, I feel like humans have touched nearly every part of this world. I mean, regardless of past humans, but even modern humans, the our sprawl has been touching everything, it seems.
5: Yeah, there's this, I think, image of archaeologists as you know, holding a machete and like just journeying and venturing through the jungle. And and I'm not I'm not going to say that's 100 percent true, but there certainly is some truth to that in some of these. Um, amazing findings and, in, in regions that have been really relatively untouched and that people are, um, finding their way into, of course, a lot more goes into archeological research than just pulling out your machete and wandering off into a jungle, but, yes. um, <laughs> but yeah, there's still some truth to that. So where, where's the line between, you know,
0: being an archeologist and being, uh, someone who discovers or learns about tribes, basically ethnographers and sociologists. Is it between the realm of like living and dead, or is there a larger gap in terms of time
3: well it it kind of all does blend together. I mean, some people have made the argument that uh archaeology is basically a an offshoot of history, so you know you can kind of draw a line wherever you want, depending on whether it's you know quote unquote Prehistoric, you know, before things were written down, or yeah, it's all just kind of semantics, but okay. I would say it goes all the way mm-hmm. from sociology to ethnography, history, archaeology. Um, I don't know that there's really a specific definition that defines them because, okay. you know, yeah, yeah I would yeah, also past people, but not necessarily past civilizations.
5: I would also say that that good archaeologists draw on a lot of different data sets, right? To make, um, to make arguments and to learn as much as possible about the past. And so one of the things we draw on is it can be sociocultural anthropology, anthropology it can be ethnography, it can be history, um, and not just necessarily material culture and the, the excavations and projects like that.
3: So, it's kind of an old school, um, approach to archaeology that would, would involve, um, Like not, not drawing on anything else, just coming up with what seemed to me to be random ideas and testing those out as hypotheses. And luckily, I think that's going by the wayside where it's now acceptable and and a lot smarter, like Chris was saying, to draw on what we know of the, the present and, um, from history and try to extrapolate that and move it backwards in time. I think we get to answers a lot, a lot quicker that way.
0: I, I'm going to completely shift gears here, because there's a question that I've wanted to ask, and I'm, I'm I, I, Sarah, we may have talked about it with you, but this is, and I don't know how much of this is myth or just a question you get all the time, but there are all of these posts on social media, and by all of, of these posts, I mean there's a few, where people are comparing. Please
1: don't say the pyramids are made by aliens.
0: Well, no, people people are trying to question <laughs> why that. There are pyramids in all of these different cultures around the same time period.
2: <laughs> well, it turns out that a pyramid's a pretty typical architectural design. So it's not it's actually like not necessarily that surprising that a Good. lot of different people came up with it. It's like pretty it's a pretty basic architectural design. Um but yeah, I don't know, that this 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 always puzzles me because I think that history is really interesting. So I don't know why people need to find some other way to make it even more scandalous crazy. Yeah. Or crazy because it's pretty fascinating what actually happened. Like we don't need to make up things or reach for things or think it's aliens. Like, yes, aliens are interesting, but it's some... In some ways, it's even cooler that people did this stuff that long ago.
1: I agree, Sarah. There's something about certain people that they want it to be like a little sexier or something. Like they, the 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 answer that it just happened because this is the way it happened is not good enough for them. They need something else.
4: Yeah.
1: I forget. There's like there's a guy who's analyzing the pyramids and the Sphinx and uh, saying that the, that that those structures are actually significantly older than they actually are, uh, and that there was like some even more ancient civilization that created them and then there was some major catastrophic global event that wiped them out and the pyramids were left and there's actually more stuff underneath the Sphinx. I haven't paid too much attention. This to guy
2: it, this guy went was, on Joe Rogan and it destroyed my life yeah. for like three months because that's all anyone would talk to me about. <laughs> it's <was> horrible.
0: <laughs> I apologize. I forget his name.
2: But I that's, remember that's, his yeah, name but I'm not going to say it.
0: I apologize from the podcasting community for that experience.
2: <laughs> you wouldn't believe all these people came out of the woodworks and they're like, oh, I know an archaeologist. I need to ask why she's part of this big conspiracy to hide what actually happened in Egypt. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> not how this works. That's, we're not that cool. We're not coordinated. Like, we're just scientists.
1: That's a, something I found really interesting about it. It's like no matter what industry you're in, there's always a fringe <laughs> community or something like operating on the edge that tries to just... Be the one to switch it up and throw the the curveball to the entire thing, and be the guy that said, "Aha! I'm the one that you know uncovered this. Everything you knew is false." And that kind of goes back to what we were saying with the conspiracies of bad archaeology in general.
3: I think it it can be really um, insulting for sure, and I don't throw the word racist around you know lightly, but when you have people basically telling like indigenous groups, you know, your ancestors weren't good enough to build this. There must be some other explanation for it. They weren't smart enough to figure this out. Uh, There must've been somebody that came in and helped them. Um, So I think that's something that archaeologists need to help guard against and and let people know that, yeah, just because you can't figure it out doesn't mean that, that somebody a thousand years ago couldn't figure it out.
0: Yeah. I think I'd never considered it in that perspective.
3: Yeah, uh,
4: we, when you're talking about the toolbox to deal with people, you know, uh, there was a book that w- was kind of famous uh, a couple of years ago um, by uh Israeli professor, Yuval Noah Harari, and it's called Sapiens. And he uses one argument there that I thought was brilliant. And now every time I do in compliance on the deep Brazil, and we get to face farmers who usually say, you know, Indians are all bums. They never work a day in their life and stuff like that. There is a line on the, on the book. That he says, you know, everything that we put in our mouths today were developed on the... Uh, now he goes like this. Uh, we did not domesticate any plant for the past 6,000 years. Everything that we put in our mouths it's already domesticated so this kind of ignorant uh, uh, not hard-working people they did all that nowadays we, we don't we don't have to figure that out anymore
0: yeah a lot of the groundwork had been laid many century ago
4: can you imagine how, you're hungry and you want to eat something and you have to domesticate I don't know corn it's gonna take a thousand years
0: You'll be dead before that. I, I, still, I'm still blown away by the, the domestication of wild animals. Like I got, I still don't understand how that process even got initiated. Like, whose idea was it? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring in this wolf and I'm gonna make it my pet.
1: <laughs> that might have been an, uh, discussed in *Sapiens*. There was another book that I took a cultural archaeo- um, anthropology class um, when I was in school. Oh, the book's name. It was called Cannibals and Kings, and it was an incredible book. I I loved it. I actually bought it after I graduated to read it again. But now that was so long <laughs> ago that I can't remember the, the the author. Oh, so Marvin Harris, and he essentially just went through the the evolution of human beings from as far back. It it, it sort of it was pretty really close to what we what what we read through in Sapiens. And I don't know if any of you uh, uh, any of other the guests here read that book that Tiago just said, but it was it's actually a really good book, I don't recommend it.
4: Is on but you list. know, the same, the same process, I think, I, I'll, okay, I'll throw this one for free. Uh, the most important thing that I learned into my journey of becoming an archaeologist is, is actually a, a principle that comes from geology that is called, I think you guys will call it in English, uniformitarism, correct me if I'm wrong, so what is the idea is that the forces that shake the past are the same forces in action today. If you understand the forces today and you give it enough time, they will be able to, to, you know, to account for what you see. And when you're talking about the wolf, and I remind me of um, a few, well, every uh, fisher in South Brazil, there is a, a town called, uh, called Laguna, and they have like a big lagoon that goes into the sea to, to, to an entrance. And the dolphins there, actually they are porpoises there, but uh, they're dolphins for all purposes. They help them fish because they keep bringing the fish into the nets of, for them to, you know, because afterwards the fish fishermen will, throw some fish for the dolphins and you know if you keep doing that for for thousands of years you're gonna have a, a, a dolphin on, on your swimming pool or something like that
0: yeah yeah I, I mean i guess the process is very it's very long but i the idea it's that's still going on yeah yeah but the idea that someone or the i the notion that someone had the idea to do it is still what kind of blows my mind but then again we are yep. you know talking over the phone mm-hmm. in thousands of miles apart
1: where do you get, where do you see archaeology
5: yeah I, I can't remember his name, name either i have the same experience years? like
1: <laughs> the what do you think those people will find and pull from the civilizations our civilization today and just a few Before decades, you finish, like, I,
0: I, everything's recorded, so there's not going to be archaeology for this moment right now, per se, but I think there will still be archaeology for, and I'm an archaeologist, so I can say that.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where, do, where does the, the field go into the future? Is there a point where everything's sort of dug up and excavated?
3: I would hope not. I think in the southwest, anyway, there's a big push for what we call preservation archaeology. Where we're understanding, we're coming to understand that that we're not smart enough to understand everything, and you know, if we dig it all up now, trying to understand everything, then it's it's going to be gone. And so we feel a responsibility to preserve what's there. And so I'd like to think that you know Sarah mentioned earlier that a lot of her work and Tiago's deals with uh, remote sensing, and I would hope that in the future that type of technology keeps developing to where maybe. They can understand things that are underground or see things without actually disturbing them.
0: Hmm.
4: I work with radar. It's an old technology actually, (laughs) but we kind of see. Yeah.
2: And so that we can't answer every question with this type of data, but we can answer different questions and we can learn a lot about places. So the we'll have the the traditional dirt archaeologists will be very upset at me and Tiago if we say that there's no need for digging, because that's certainly not the case, but we've chosen these methods where we can learn a lot without disturbing anything. And then there are things where, like, if we think that we use the ground penetrating radar, for example, to find a burial shaft or something, that might be something where Tiago and I will use that information to be like, this area needs to be preserved, but we're not even suggesting that we go in and excavate.
1: Does LiDAR penetrate the ground?
2: LiDAR does not. However, Tiago specializes in ground penetrating radar, and that does. So by combining these two methods, we have a good idea of the surface of the ground and then also what's under the ground, which is pretty cool.
4: It is.
1: And and LiDAR just to... Make sure I understand it fully. It gives you a, a read of the topography essentially, and you can identify structures through tree canopies and things yeah, like that.
2: Yeah, so we're uh, particularly fortunate in the areas that we surveyed in Cambodia because they're in floodplains for the most part. So, a thousand years ago, when the Khmer were building their houses, they built their houses on mounds and then on stilts. So, those are kind of two barriers to pre- prevent against flooding. But what's really nice for us as archaeologists is we can easily see those house mounds. So we don't see the houses themselves. We see the mounds that they built to yep. build a house on top of. So it's it's particularly well-suited to LiDAR data. Um, hmm. We have colleagues that work in different areas. I know in Central America it's been used a lot. It's different type of archaeology there, so you can see a lot of features, but not to the same degree that we can see them in Cambodia.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, I read an interesting book, The Lost City of mm, yes
3: Yep. Um
1: where they use that to, to uncover old temples is really fascinating. i
3: like to say, too, we were talking before about how archaeology has changed. And then your question about in the future, I think there's a lot of I think there's going to be at least 100 years where archaeologists can use data that was collected, you know, in the past. We're, you know, over a century into archaeology as a discipline where people have been just digging and digging and digging. And there are warehouses full of artifacts and soil samples and every type of data you could, you could ask for pretty much. And they're just stored there. Basically, uh, they've been ignored ever since. So if you have a research question, there's a very good opportunity to go back and find the data that's already been collected and learn something from that without going and digging up a new site. So I think uh, a, a lot mean- of archaeologists are coming around to understand that
1: and even just general dating right carbon dating isn't a perfect science and someone correct me again if i'm wrong on this but i believe it. that it really just helps you get an idea of the age of let's say a bone or or a structure within the soil layers by analyzing the carbon in the soil not the actual structure no no it's, the from, sample. The sem- it's, it's from
4: the it's from the it's from the sample itself okay as long as it was a living organism
3: they are refining that. Okay. So it's, it's becoming more accurate okay. and there, there seems like every year they're coming up with new, um, techniques. You know, now they have optically stimulated luminescence testing where they can see how much light is emitted by quartz crystals that have been buried underground. And you can look at the direction in which, uh, iron particles microscopically are pointing, you know, at the time of a fire to see, you know, when when things were last heated up so there are all these new techniques that are coming up that use that produce finer and finer data
0: i don't know if you have seen this recently but there's a uh, i guess in the past it has been known that the poles of the earth have shifted either significantly or completely flipped and there's I, And i don't know if this falls into the realm of archaeology either but studying uh, trees that are hundreds if not thousands of years old that are preserved in bogs in New Zealand. They're basically cutting through and looking at the tree rings to determine what the effect of the magnetic shift or the pole shift was. And I think there's a lot of research now that is supporting the idea that it actually did have a big impact on life on the surface of the earth when before the assumption was that it had a minimal impact.
4: Yes, there was a paper on, on science, I think, was this this month. Actually, my advisor sent this paper to me last week, <laughs> but I already have read it for himself. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to keep the literature on, up to date. But uh, it is quite interesting uh, what they found out there, but the problem is that the, the, you know the, the whole story, doesn't fit it as easy and as uh, 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 in the way they are trying to sell it on the paper. Now, and Science Magazine uh, also have has published a critique to the paper. So they have published both the paper and the critique, mm, and, and, okay. and, and that's what they're saying. We're talking about the past and how we perceive and how, how we're going to perceive our challenge. To me, I think if you look backwards, what you should be able to see is like a bundle of different possibilities. You know? If you think about ideologies, for instance, you know, or, or, or gender role, or, or fashion uh, against liberals, you have this bundle, and they are always competing against each other. So people usually, nowadays, they look into the past, and they cherry-pick stuff. Because, you know, back in the 18th century, they were already saying something about this or something about that. Mm-hmm. And you probably would be able to find everything that you're looking for as long as you have uh, written testimony of that. And then uh, nowadays, ideologists share it picking through those different discourses. And But the thing is that, I don't know, we cannot see the past. We can only see the present. I would say yeah. and we have kind of tried to build up from that and there is a bunch of other uh, pressures from our society that will make some of these ideologies come into fruition but they w- will always be there, it's always a struggle that one cannot uh, get rid of the other yeah. mm-hmm.
3: and the,
4: and the same thing I'm glad you guys did not ask me what, what archaeology is because since I started What I hear is that what I do is not archaeology. And the thing is, archaeology, the idea of what archaeology is changes over time, and I hope it does. So I have no idea what archaeology will be in 100 years because it's been changing. And I'm living proof, I think Sarah also. We will increase probably to some extent, I'm just not very uh, aware of of the. Archaeology is not the same thing. Back on when they found King Tut's uh, tomb in Egypt, Howard Carter and his team, they broke his fingers, the mummy's fingers, to take away the rings. They, they broke his, his uh, yep. skull to take away the mask. This is impossible to think about it nowadays. That's not the kind of stuff. Wow. You do. <laughs> yeah. I was just watching a
1: documentary on that and they are actually like rediscovering it uh, and essentially everything that he had in his name in his tomb was actually his sister's, but they just erased her name from it and made it for him instead and put it in his tomb when he died. Uh, I, found it, I found it pretty interesting. There is a,
4: there, it is, a, a King's tomb It's amazing because of several little details. He died very at a very young age, so people were not expect him to die. So when he died, he said, "Oh my God, why are we gonna bury the pharaoh?" You know, and they didn't have a pyramid, they didn't have a proper way, uh, a proper thing to do the the, uh, the whole works for his burial. So probably this kind of stuff happened. They took stuff that was already ready or uh, were dedicated to other dead people to put in there. But I think the biggest. Of them all is that they use a funerary chamber in the uh, valley of the kings which was already ready excavated into the stone but it wasn't for a pharaoh so it didn't quite fit everything that needs to be there so they they broke down because they excavate everything the little stairs that goes into the chamber the chamber itself and they could not bring the stuff in so they broke down the uh, the stairs And that allows for the stuff to get into the tomb. And after they they were done, they rebuilt the stairs. And many years later, when they raided the tomb to, to, you know, to steal the stuff from there, they could not take the the big stuff out because the stairs was on the way. And that's the only reason why we have this kind of stuff. (laughs) Uh, it, It is quite interesting, right? It, well, the, the the reevaluation
1: of it too kind of ties into what we said to, to what Will was saying, going back and reviewing archaeological evidence that we already have, mm-hmm. and and learning something new about it. Yeah, this field is is obviously very fascinating to to me and others. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. Pretty.
0: And, and I mean
2: a, another big thing too is that you, when you start having different people and different perspectives that are archaeologists, they start asking different questions. Yeah. So for a very long time, the makeup of an archaeologist was a very, it was a white male. And a white male asked a different question than a white female, than a, you know, all these other types of people. So we're learning a lot more about different sectors of societies in the past because we have different people today asking the questions.
1: That's So that, this is a, a short tangent, t- uh, tangent but applicable to what you just said we just did the same exact type of conversation but it was all with uh, people fighting animal poaching in africa so it was, it was four women on the on the panel and we were going through all the issues they faced defending or trying to help animals and something that they realized was typically it was a, a, men, a man-driven field fighting physically fighting poachers and once women started to come to africa from western countries and try to aid in this fight they the women were much more inclined to help the animals in a more nurturing way and actually enhance the recovery of these animals, where men were really just focused on fighting the poachers. Women were more focused on actually nurturing the animals. To help. And working with and I, the communities. And working with the communities, yes. Yeah, so I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, so per, per, having multiple perspectives is pretty... I don't, I don't think there's anything in the world that that wouldn't be beneficial to.
3: I would add to what Sarah said, that historically archaeology has been kind of the realm of affluence also, that... People, you know, whose families can support them going on these jaunts around the world to find interesting things. So even still today, like for a student to go to field school is probably going to be at least around four to five thousand dollars. So, you know, the, the college kid working their way through school isn't going to be able to afford that. So yeah. as a discipline, we're coming to, to understand that and look at different ways to get a more diverse um group of students.
1: Yeah. Can, can we, can we like linger with this topic a little bit? Something I want to do is sort of let someone who's listening, who is at school age know, uh, give them kind of a general blueprint or overview on the steps that they would need to take through education and maybe just a few programs that they could look into and research. Just, just a few steps for the process to become an archaeologist. And anybody can take that one.
3: Well, I would say, and this isn't like the first thing, you know, they'll have to go to college, but it kind of building on what I was saying a minute ago, the uh, University of Arizona has a great program where they've partnered with the National Science Foundation to, um, uh, they get grants to where it not only pays for students to go to field school and get that training and experience, but they also get a small stipend and one of the prerequisites to to apply for that program is you have to be from an underrepresented community, either financially or or uh, or some other way. So they end up getting a lot of good students who are smart but wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to put themselves you know through a field school. So I'd say that program or programs like that would be a great way to to get some training.
1: Yeah, well, I want to make sure after this conversation that we get the link to that. So we'll add it to our show notes so people can access it pretty quickly. Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: that's uh, that's the main purpose of the podcast is to get more people involved in travel. And if they find a A realm or a career that they like doing that isn't just focused on travel, but also lets them do other things.
1: Yeah. Does anybody have anything else to add to that, the education process?
5: Yes. Uh,
4: Oh, sorry, Chris. Go on.
5: Oh, no, I was just going to say more generally that there's uh, accessibility. There's a big accessibility problem that's, that's not necessarily being rectified right now in archaeology, but it's definitely being tackled. Um, and that's accessibility of um, collections, right? Can we get collections that belong to descendant communities back to descendant communities? That's in terms of of, you know, we're running out of space in museums to put things that have been excavated, right? And so how can we find more space? How can we turn towards digital projects and things like that? How can we get folks from some of the communities that archaeologists are working with involved in anthropology, even though there are these really tenuous and oftentimes um, not great relationships between archaeologists and descendant communities, um, who've been hurt before, right, because archaeologists have done research without, you know, any consent from the community or or who have um, have taken things and locked them in museums, objects and, and materials and objects that are still very much sacred to those communities. And so this is I mean, one of the things that that I think um, folks like Archaeology Southwest and the U- University of Arizona and, and the National Science Foundation are doing really well right now is trying to get um, folks from under, underrepresented communities involved in field schools and things like that and also I mean I, I would also this was something I want to bring up earlier is this idea that um, w- collections also being digitized right so even if you're a non-archaeologist even if you're a student who's like oh, I have a tangential interest in archaeology there's a project here in the US Southwest called Cyber Southwest um, and you can go online create an account and look at types like on a map here is where These types of ceramics have been found. You can say, I want to look at all settlements in the United States Southwest that have five to 10 rooms that have a ball court or that were built on a platform mound. And it will show you on the map all these places and what they found in those places and references and things that you want to check out. And I think that's just such an incredible leap to go from these museum collections that are guarded and very difficult to get to, um, to somewhere where you can go on a web interface and look at it and say, okay, I have a question that I want to ask. Um, and here's, you know, here I can take a look at it and and see.
1: That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm gonna spend time on that for
0: sure.
5: Yeah, a lot more accessible.
0: Yeah. Uh,
4: okay. T- uh, if you if you're a teacher, also, I've been in Arkansas, uh, but it's been long ago, so I'm just checking on the web. They're still operating, so. But I, it was an initiative that they have there. It's called the East Initiative. And you can actually make your 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 school. If you're a, a teacher at the school, you can uh, uh, get through the university by the East Initiative, and they will help you out in putting together a whole thing for your community with all the experts from the from the university. So when I was there, there was a few uh, ones that were uh, archaeological projects that they put together. And they have, the, you know, the best gear and the best specialists, And you can have all this available for you, for you and your classroom, you know, to work with.
3: I thought it was really, really interesting. Hmm. I think for uh, art students who might be interested in archaeology or who are, I'd recommend uh, volunteering as much as possible. Uh, it seems like the... The current generation seems to think opportunities are going to necessarily just come to them. And uh, it's kind of a hard uh, discipline or career to break into. But if you're an undergrad, just start volunteering on any project that that looks interesting to you. And you're, you're going to network and gain experience and training. And then they'll be, you know, at the front of the list when, when other opportunities open up. Yeah, it's a great idea.
1: And like we mentioned, there's not just one aspect of archaeology that you can be involved with. You can be the person digging up the, the artifacts, or you can be the person sitting on the desktop actually doing that type of work as well. So if you don't want to get your hands dirty, you can sit at a computer and vice versa.
0: And still travel.
1: And still travel.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think we're getting to the end of the conversation here. So we do have one last question, which I think Bob shared with everyone, and it is a two part question. And Chris, will start <laughs> with you. This and Bob, do you do you care to give the introduction for the, for the uh, question for the hoorah? Elliot Elliot Who rock Question of the day.
1: Are like oh, you even do the ham horn today? That's all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> So. Chris, we're going to start with you, and then we'll go to Tiago, Will, and end with you, Sarah. So if you could achieve one thing as an archaeologist, what would it be? And the tandem, the second part of this is, what do you hope the field of archaeology ultimately contributes to humanity?
5: Well, uh, if I could achieve one thing as an archaeologist, it would be fame and wealth, obviously. (laughs) you know, Um, No, clearly not, right? If you've chosen a career in archaeology, there's the there's not generally a lot of fame and wealth that goes along with it. I think...
0: Unless you prove that the I pyramids could, were built by uh, aliens.
5: <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. Unless you can prove that. Um, which, you know, spoiler alert, you can't. So, <laughs> no, that's not true. We we are open to evidence, but it, it seems rather unlikely given the evidence out there. Um, I think, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about Indiana Jones and the impact that Indiana Jones had on on people and how they see archaeology and things like that. And I think... If I could achieve one thing, it would be an updated understanding of what it is that archaeologists do um, and what we don't do. Right. And so in, Indiana Jones, I think, has done a lot for archaeology and, in good terms and in bad terms. Um, but I think there's just a really it's not super reflective of what the, the work that actual archaeologists are doing. And so, you know, like I said earlier, I work in a chemistry lab part part of the time. I work with archaeological collections in Zacatecas, Mexico. I work on projects um, near Mexico City. And so, like, there are all these elements and things. Um, and, and in some ways, we all do. You know, we have our hands in like four or five different pots. We have different hats that we wear and different things that we do. And so, I think really highlighting that um, can can go a long way in terms of people who are out there who have have interests in, say, chemistry. Um, and don't don't yet see how that can intersect with archaeology. Right. Or have an interest in geospatial mapping or, or things like that. And don't yet see how that can can um, integrate or articulate really well with with what we do in archaeology. Uh, and I would say my my hope for the field of archaeology, what I hope we ultimately contribute to humankind um, is that I hope we that it can teach us lessons about how humans can live together and, and get along over long periods of time. Right. For every. Example of a site that lasted fifty years, um, where people people left or for every example of warfare and things like that that we have, you know, you have ten examples of places where people have lived together for hundreds and thousands of years, um, in the same place and found ways to get along. and And I think that people in the past experienced a lot of the problems we uh, experience today. And Sarah talked about urbanization and how you know bringing people together into these dense populations and how that can impact how people live their lives. and And I think there's a lot in archaeology. Um, to understand how how people can come together and how people can uh, learn from one another and and find ways to live together that are both uh, sustainable and and good for the well being of of people. So.
0: All right. Thank you, Tiago.
4: Oh, uh, what should I what I would like to I hope to achieve? Well, let's think. Uh, a good paid job will be a start. <laughs> yeah, that that will be a nice thing to have, right? I think I speak <laughs> to all of us here. In terms of research, oh, it's hard. say uh, actually a working radar, and that's another thing. Um, wow, I don't, I don't think I hope much.
0: Just I get will, done with my PhD. Hey, that would be nice. Hey, too. That that's a goal in and of itself. That's an achievement. <laughs>
4: Yes, I don't have big hopes for the future, you know, not not in the pandemic uh, um, era. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Tiago, is anybody looking for the discovery of Machu Picchu, like, to be the person who finds whatever it is for the first time, finds King Tut's tomb? Uh, Is that, like, is that something, is that your World Series or your Super Bowl you know how those guys dream of the, the, those things happening. Is that
4: something? Is that you know? You, know, Do you guys think? Yes, of that? you have the little you know. You have little clubs. So we probably have a club in Cambodia of of, of Southeast Asian archaeologists. I'm not really uh, aware of the politics there. You should ask Dr. Plasan about it. But I'm pretty sure they they have their own. Uh, you know, aims and they are very specific. He wants to be the first guy to find that white pottery from South China or something like that. Something that doesn't make sense to anyone else. And that's one of the problems of academia, I think, you know, and um, even the peer review process. We were talking about this a little early. I was in Australia and they did something quite interesting in New Zealand with Australia but it was a New Zealand uh, uh, project, Australia was part of it, they were uh, judging the grants by lottery because peer review is usually able just to create more of the same and they were looking for innovation and they could not figure out a way. To innovate, you know, if you're asking the old dudes at the university what needs to be done, they're gonna give always the same answers. So it depends. That's interesting. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, yeah, I wasn't exactly sure what to say about what I'd like to accomplish, but then the question you posed to Tiago about um, wanting to find the first or the biggest or the oldest, um, hopefully, I. I think to some degree that mindset is going out of style in archaeology. And uh, I think more interesting questions are about human behavior and the choice, the reasoning behind the choices. So like when you guys brought up earlier, like the first person to try to domesticate a dog or something, I, I think it's less interesting to find out who that first person was uh, and more interesting to find out you know how would that have been beneficial to them and what would have made them come to that to that choice so so i guess that's what i would hope for the future of archaeology is to not worry so much about you know finding the the biggest pyramid or the oldest cave paintings but to try to understand why people did things and to be able to project that into the future like in order to prevent problems from arising, hopefully, or, or fix problems that we already have. Because like Tiago said earlier, given the same, uh, conditions and circumstances, things are going to repeat themselves. And, and we can see that, you know, in, in all of our research. We can see today reflected in the deep past. So if we're able to find out why people are doing things, we can hopefully head off problems before they get out of control in the future.
4: All
0: right. Yeah. Sarah?
2: So mine's probably I'm just gonna take it back a step and be very basic with mine, which is Southeast Asia is a region where there's some very little research done, but it's an amazing part of the world. And what I would like is for I learned a lot about Greece and Rome. And I want people to graduate from let's say high school, let's say elementary school, having at least heard of some of these places in Southeast Asia, because I made it through graduates for, through undergrad without even having heard of these places. So I just want to help diversify the regions of the world and the history that we're taught.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Excellent. I, I personally, um, you coming on our podcast a year ago it was one of the first times that I've ever heard of heard of that. So yeah. It, does it require, though, a colosseum to be discovered for it to draw the attention?
2: Um, uh, I mean, so it, Southeast Asia has these things. Southeast Asia has Angkor Wat. Southeast Asia has Begon. But um, our educational system is biased towards the type of history that people are taught. Right. And um, there's a reason for that. There's a long historical legacy of why that is. Um. But yeah, I'd like to just help bring attention to other parts of the world.
0: Hopefully that's we've a really been a positive part of that. Yeah.
3: That's a very interesting question, though, about, you know, does there have to be a Machu Picchu? Because when you look at Angkor Wat, I mean, that's something that, I mean, it's impressive. Yeah. Um, and I th- I think there's a much better chance of students learning about Cambodia now that they're being exposed to that than they are, say, the... Central Arizona tradition with their little unshaped, you know, hovels. Um, we, we don't have, you know, the big temples to show. So that's an interesting question: how we can potentially overcome that. And, and archaeologists are working on that. That, and you know, I'm sure Sarah and Tiago are paying attention to like the the more domestic aspects of uh, their sites as opposed to the, like the big impressive temples. But yeah. Being able to show students why the trash is, is potentially more important than the, the treasures is a challenge. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I think the comment you made earlier is, uh, you know, the why behind everything is being able to tell a compelling story is arguably what is going to draw people to want to learn and maybe want to visit and understand these places.
2: And the goal of all of this, I think, is to harpen back to that diversity. So there's diversity which you guys talk a lot about on the podcast with traveling to different areas when you're exposed to new groups of people and new traditions and new cultures. I think that really helps um, the way that you understand and perceive the world. And so there's that horizontal aspect of traveling into different areas of the world, but there's also a vertical aspect, which is traveling into the past. Yeah. And so forget everything that you know about humans and the way that you do things because it might have been entirely different.
0: Well said. I like the I like the vertical travel.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you everybody for taking the time to do this today and and come on our show and talk this through with us. We really appreciate it.
3: Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, yeah, if you're listening
1: to this, yeah, yeah, not a problem. And and if you're listening to this and you want to become an archaeologist, you're interested in, in becoming one somewhere down the line, wherever you are in your own life, we're going to have a few links in the show notes and. Maybe you can even reach out to some of the panel members to get additional information on how
3: you can take those first few steps. Definitely call Chris. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure. Yeah, leave my so phone number know. in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Chris has been voluntold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: thank you again. And uh, this has been a great conversation. really appreciate it.
4: Thank you, guys. Nice to be here.